Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined by Bill Galston of Brookings and the Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker of The Week. We are also delighted to welcome a special guest, Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. Dr. Shockey has served on the National Security Council and in the Departments of State and Defense, his broad foreign policy expertise. Since we last gathered around this table, the United States and Iran exchanged missiles. The U.S. missiles fired from a drone killed Qasem Soleimani leader of the Quds Force. On Tuesday night, Iran fired a series of, of ballistic missiles into two bases housing American troops in Iraq. No one was injured, and there is word that the Americans and Iraqis had plenty of advance notice about the incoming missiles. Also on Tuesday, a Ukrainian passenger jet crashed shortly after taking off from Tehran Airport. On Wednesday, President Trump said some embarrassing things like bragging about how wonderful our military equipment is and suggesting that the missiles fired by Iran had been bought and paid for by the Obama administration. He also declared that Iran would never obtain, not that this part was uh, embarrassing, but he declared that Iran would never obtain a nuclear weapon so long as he is president. And today we learned that, from, uh, that the U.S. intelligence agencies are saying they believe that Iran shot down that, that Ukrainian uh, passenger plane by accident. Also today, the House is considering a resolution limiting the president's power to pursue further military action against Iran, and at least two Republican senators have said they would support such a resolution in the Senate. Meanwhile, over at the impeachment, Nancy Pelosi has yet to forward the articles to the Senate, and former National Security Advisor John Bolton has shown a little leg saying he would testify if subpoenaed. So we have all that, and in just three and a half weeks, uh, the first voting uh, in the Iowa caucuses. So let us begin with President Trump's uh, uh, confrontation with I Iran. Uh, Corey, I'm going to start with you and ask uh, whether this, we can get into all the crazy details, but in, in the broader perspective, doesn't this calm one of the main fears that people have had about President Trump, that he would not be able to handle an international crisis? Uh, well, I wouldn't put those concerns entirely to rest. Uh, the decision to kill Qasem Soleimani was justified, but like so many of President Trump's foreign policy decisions, they carried it out in a way that managed to minimize the uh, advantages and maximize the costs of doing it. And reestablishing a red line against Iranian malevolence was important to do, but having done it and then absorbed the retaliatory strike from Iran, it President Trump didn't sound to me particularly persuasive in suggesting that, you know, any further bad behavior by Iran towards shipping in the Gulf, towards trying to destabilize regional governments, towards America's allies, that 
that that had been handled in a way that made clear exactly where the red line is beyond uh, protection of American citizens. So I think it was terrific that President Trump didn't turn the ratchet again. Uh, but I think there are still some causes for concern about uh, his comportment in the conduct of the crisis. So a different, uh, from, from a different direction, Linda, let me ask it this way. Uh, it was, you could argue that a lot of the handling of this after the decision to, uh, to drone Soleimani was shambolic. Um, you had the Pentagon releasing a letter in response to the Iraqi parliament saying that, yes, we were indeed pulling out of, pulling all troops out of Iraq. It was a mistake. Um, you had the president tweeting that he was going to um, target cultural sites within Iran as a method of retaliation, and that further um, he, would, uh, he would respond with disproportionate force, which most people think is uh, not, not the right response. So, um, so was, there, was there enough to, to keep, the as, as Corey was saying, enough to keep the concerns uh, bubbling? Well, you know, this is the jury's out. Uh, there's absolutely, in my view, no question that killing, um, uh, what the killing was in fact justified, and that if either the Bush administration or even the Obama administration had had a clear shot at killing Soleimani, uh, as this was done on a road in the middle of the night, uh, a road dedicated uh, to an airport in which there were not civilians likely to be casualties, in which only the bad guys would get hit, um, I think any American president would have taken this shot. So the fact that he did it, I'm glad he did it. Uh, it was the right thing to do. Now the question is, what do we do after it? And I think that's what everybody's worried about. And I think that's exactly what Corey is saying, is that we don't know what's going to happen. And right now, this whole idea now, well, we've had a tit for a tat and, you know, two people have died, an American, a naturalized American citizen and Soleimani, head of the Quds Force. Uh, and now we're even and, and everything can be hunky-dory again. I don't think that's likely. Uh, I don't trust the Iranians, and I believe we will see more attacks. I don't think their history has been one of attacking uh, without taking credit for it, using proxies to attack, and attacking uh, in far-flung places. So I think we're going to see more, uh, and if they continue as they have in the past, they won't take credit for it, but, you know, they are still a huge threat to us. Damon, um, what, you know, there's there's been... A tremendous. Um, there have been a lot of war whoops um, from people who just five minutes ago were saying that they were really worried about our getting involved in endless wars. Um, so that's been interesting and a little um, head spinning. But um, but would you agree with Linda that the strike itself on Suleimani was justified? And I think Corey would agree with that too. Well, um, yes, I think it was justified in the sense that we don't really have to wring our hands and worry if we committed some kind of uh, a moral failing in, in taking out uh, Soleimani. He clearly has done numerous things uh, against the United States, against American soldiers over a very long period of time. 
Uh, I mean, the Obama administration faced the question of whether to take him out uh, themselves and decided against it. But of course, but it was on the table uh, back then as well. And things have only ratcheted up. Clearly, all of the series of provocations from Iran, especially through its proxies over the last six months, have been um, uh, have been quite egregious, and it shows uh, a bit of restraint on the Trump administration's part, the fact that it took so long to do something in response. Now, taking Soleimani out was a, a big response, but given uh, his his role in orchestrating uh, a lot of these attacks, it, it makes sense. Now, my line on these things tends to be that I'm less interested in the question, actually, of whether... Uh, something is justified or not, and more in whether uh, it, it advances our vital national interests. And in that respect, I think that um, ratcheting up the the tension with Iran even further at this moment uh, might not be uh, the smartest move, but I concede that we're now about 18 moves into a series of moves on both sides, and it's very hard to kind of get out of that sequence to to figure out how one could change course once you're committed to an uh, you know to a certain uh, a certain position uh, down the line. You can't just say, "Well, I should have done something different seven steps ago, and therefore I won't respond to an attack on our embassy, for instance, which was the real precipitating uh, event before this killing." Yeah, it, it does. Feel that um, in some ways this was um, this was a very old grudge that was being settled. Where you know Donald Trump is old enough to have very very vivid memories of the um, uh, taking of American hostages by Iran um, in 1979 and uh, the humiliation that they subjected our people to. And um, I have a sense that uh, that that still rankles, and that uh, when he saw the embassy in uh, in Iraq uh, being stormed uh, that that it triggered uh, those old memories and uh, and and in this case you know I, they were memories that I shared. What about you, Bill? <clears throat> well, I think there's a distinction between an act being justified and an act being wise, uh, and I'm quite sure of the affirmative answer to the former, less so of the latter. And let me tell you why, just very specifically. It wasn't just Soleimani that we killed. You know, it was also a leading, perhaps the leaning, leading Shiite uh, militia leader. That set in, my, in, in motion a series of events that could very well lead to the expulsion of American forces from Iraq. If that happens, I would, I would do the sums and conclude that the killing of Soleimani was a net negative because what is going to happen if the Iraqi parliament, uh, which has already cast a preliminary vote to do this, withdraws the authorization for American troops to be present in Iraq as the head of a multinational coalition to defeat and suppress ISIL, ISIS? You know, the well, Islamic State. Could I just whoa, 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 quibble whoa. with you just on that point, though, Bill, because I think it's an important point. This vote that was taken by the Iraqi parliament, as I understand it, it was uh, almost all Shiite. 
Uh, the Kurds weren't there, the Sunnis weren't there, and uh, it doesn't really have the force of law. Now, you may be right in the long run, but I don't, don't put too much emphasis on that well, vote. Well, look, from a formal standpoint, you're right. On the other hand, the Shiites have – the Shia have the majority in the Iranian parliament uh, and uh, – a very plausible construction of the sentiments of that entire sector of uh, Iraqi society is that uh, they don't want us there. Uh, that's not true of all the Iraqi citizens because the Sunni and the Kurds do want us there. But they're, uh, the experts I consult uh, believe that there's a more than 50 percent chance that – this sequence of events will culminate in the rapid removal of American forces from Iraq. What would that do? Right? First of all, it would empower Iran mightily. And secondly, it would create an opening for the reemergence of ISIL. What would that mean? Iraq would become the next cockpit of apparently un, an apparently unending Muslim civil war throughout the region. I find it difficult to score that one as a win. Now, obviously, the jury's out. I don't know this is going to happen. You don't know it's not going to happen. Oh, of course not. And, and I so, think Trump may want it to happen, and just well, as Obama did, and I think that would be a big the, mistake. That would let's, be a big mistake. Let's bring Corey into this. Um, you know, the... Um, Obviously, uh, it would be the most devout wish of the clerics in Tehran for the U.S. to leave Iraq, uh, or even better, to be chased out of Iraq. Uh, they, they'd like nothing better, uh, and that would be a, a huge win for them. Um, you could also add into this, um, and we don't know if that's going to happen, um, I have my doubts, but um, in addition, uh, you could cite the fact that months ago in Iran, the entire country was roiled by protests, internal protests. People were very angry. Uh, they were angry about the rise of oil prices, uh, of uh, gasoline prices, which were set to increase by 300%. And, but they were also angry about Iran's foreign policy, about the attention that the money that goes to things like the Quds Force as opposed to being spent at home. And Iran does have kind of an imperialist foreign policy. Uh, they're involved in Yemen, they're involved in Lebanon, and so on and so forth. Syria. Um, and Syria, of course, yes, most importantly. Um, so, but now, after this assassination of, uh, of Soleimani, uh, the streets are thronged with people mourning their martyr. So, um, those things could all be put on the ledger, Corey, couldn't they, of maybe not such a wise uh, thing as it, hanging it in the balance. What do you think? Yeah, I shared Bill's concern that Soleimani was failing in life at a strategy that our killing him may help him succeed at. Hmm. Um, for exactly the reason you just raised, Mona, which is that Soleimani is the architect of a strategy of creating strategic depth for Iran by destabilizing regional governments, by uh, by building militia that that undercut the the state in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon even in the Palestinian territories. And 
I think that strategy had reached its natural limits. And what you saw in the protests, both in Lebanon and in Iraq, was Shia protesting against corruption and sectarian governance. And I think we've really missed an opportunity to capitalize on and and further strengthen the legitimacy of calls for better governance in the region, because that's our best inoculation against Iranian influence, just as it's our best inoculation against terrorism. Um, Corey, I want to stay with you for another question, because one thing we didn't mention in the fallout from all of this is that Iran has withdrawn from compliance with the JCPOA, and it said it's going to move forward with the uh, uh, development of uh, nuclear technology, nuclear weapons, potentially. Um, you know, I've, I've read conflicting things. There are a lot of people who will tell you with great assurance that uh, Iran was already cheating, was not abiding by the terms of the agreement, and there are others who say no, they, you know, for whatever the flaws of the agreement, they were. One of the people who believed they were was Jim Mattis. Um, so, uh, and the UN has certified. What's your view about that? My view is that, uh, as far as we could tell, Iran was in compliance with the agreement. And I think we would be in a better place now if the administration had remained a party, the United States administration had remained a party to the agreement while moving aggressively ahead to counter Iran's missile programs to counter their destabilization of regional governments, their human rights abuses, the terrorism. Uh, the Obama administration hesitated to move on these other uh, causes for concern with Iranian behavior because they wanted to get the agreement and then they wanted the agreement to settle in. Uh, but one of the costs we pay for having withdrawn from the agreement, in addition to having even less visibility into whether Iran is building a nuclear weapon and their acceleration potentially of the timeline to less than a year to having it. That will really be a big test of Donald Trump. You know, he reestablished the red line of no killing of Americans. But if I were Iran, I would watch America's North Korea policy and think, no way the president's actually going to pull the trigger to prevent us from acquiring a weapon because he didn't do it while North Korea acquired 32 nuclear weapons during the negotiations with the U.S. Well, and doesn't it actually, uh, doesn't it intensify the argument that this is exactly the way to deal with the United States is to make sure you've got a nuclear weapon, right? Right. That, if you yes, want to stay in power. Right. Yeah. This is the Gaddafi versus Kim comparison. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Pretty revealing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and also, killing bad guys is sometimes a good thing to do, no question. Sometimes maybe less good than we hope. I mean, as we saw with Gaddafi, uh, where the consequences in Libya have not been have not been so terrific. All right. Um, one other thing I just want to touch on before we leave this topic, and anybody, you know, jump ball, whoever wants to comment on this. Um, there were some comments from Republicans that were really just, I found, just beyond the pale, but very typical of what our politics seems to have become. You had uh, Doug Collins and uh, Nikki Haley, who I used to think very highly of, um, saying things like, the Democrats are the only ones who are mourning for Soleimani. 
Um, comments, anyone? Well, like you, I used to think very highly of Nikki Haley, and my opinion has been in steep decline over the last few months uh, as she's decided that she is going to try to take on the mantle of the Trump wing of the Republican Party, and, and it was a disgraceful thing to say. And, uh, you know, it, it just shows how poisonous our politics have become that you could say something like that. Right. Okay. Well, everything is a wedge issue now, including foreign policy. So the Republicans know that, uh, that the Democratic Party has more ambivalent feelings about using force around the world. And so when Trump acts very decisively in foreign policy, kills Soleimani, uh, missiles are flying toward bases where American troops are, are stationed in Iraq. And the it's a it's a great temptation among Republicans to attempt to portray the other side as all being represented by a certain extreme faction of the other side and to force the Democrats to fight amongst themselves about how to respond to that. Well, I think um, that's I think that what we've seen, I think it's more strategic than that. I think that what we've what we've seen is the first shot fired. In the primary contest between Nikki Haley and Mike Pompeo for the nineteen for the twenty twenty four Republican nomination, uh, maybe we'll have plenty of time to discuss that. I think probably we'll uh, we'll see Tucker Carlson in the mix too. Oh no! Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. He's going to be there. Uh -huh. Oh, don't forget Josh Hawley, yeah. the fearsome yeah. foursome. Oh boy! <laughs> Four horsemen of the. Yeah, apocalypse. I agree with that too. <laughs> All right. Uh, but so on a related topic, um, uh, we should we should discuss how the Democrats uh, handled this, uh, how they responded to this challenge. Uh, Biden was, uh, I thought, pretty balanced. Um, not so Bernie Sanders, whose default setting is that if, if there's an international conflict, we are in the wrong. Blame America first, <laughs> our is. old friend Gene Kirkpatrick used is, to say, and, you know, and it still is, stands. It, it is true of people like Bernie. Uh, that is their their default stance: is that it that it, it must be it must be something that we've done wrong, um, which isn't to say we don't do things wrong. <laughs> Obviously, we make mistakes and uh, blunder and whatever. But uh, but what did you guys? What did, what did the people who, who lean Democrat, uh, I guess that's you, Bill, what did you make of the... Uh... Well, only one Democrat decided to deliver a serious, formal, organized, policy-rich response to President Trump, and that was Joe Biden. And I think Biden was very deliberately elevating himself. He wasn't just going to issue a two-sentence statement or say something at a town hall. He deliberately took time out from his schedule to stage an event with this classic backdrop of American flags where he was presenting himself as an alternative commander-in-chief, criticizing, I think firmly but very respectfully, particularly by contemporary standards, the decision-making of the President of the United States. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, and so in addition to the substance, which, as Mona said, it was reasonably balanced, you also had the form, which was, you know, 
respectful of the role of the president in shaping and then publicly articulating and defending a foreign policy. And I thought Biden was particularly forceful on the importance of the president standing up, articulating the basis for a policy, taking questions, explaining things to the American people. And he was clearly saying that if he were president, that's what he would do. And I believe him. We, um, there's, a, there's an ambiguity about foreign and defense policy that's built into the Constitution. Um, the founders gave the Congress the sole authority to declare war, but they made the president the commander-in-chief. And there's been a tussle pretty much ever since over where those two things overlap and, where, and, and who has what authority. Most of the time, um, the president has been, uh, he's been the one who's come out ahead. He's been deferred to. Um, but right now, uh, I, this afternoon, as far as I know, there's a vote in the House uh, that will um, uh, seek to limit the president's war-making power vis-a-vis Iran. Um, And uh, two members of the Senate, uh, who are Republicans, have said after that briefing that they found so offensive, and by the way, Mike Lee's uh, comments when he came out of that room were really, they were bracing, they were they were, it felt like a real moment. It, it did not feel scripted. He was furious, and he said it was the worst briefing that he had ever received, at least on defense matters, as a member of the Senate, nine years, nine and a half years, um, and that they were treating the members of the Senate uh, and the Congress uh, like children. And at, at one point, Senator Schumer, they said they had to leave after 75 minutes, um, the briefers, that is. And Senator Schumer said, well, will you be available to answer our follow-up questions later? And the answer was no. So um, <laughs> where, uh, where do, does this um, fight over war powers, where are we on that? Does the war powers resolution have any teeth? Uh, It has very little teeth because Congress has been so deferential to the president on war powers. But in my judgment, we are long overdue for Congress to reassert its authority by spending, by by saying, uh, by passing a new authorization for the use of military force for operations we have going on around the world that are not al-Qaeda related, although they are terrorism related. Uh, You know, Congress, the president has accrued so much power because Congress has given it to him Mm -hmm. and it's long overdue Mm -hmm. for them Mm -hmm. to take it back. So I hope that that the derision with which the administration has been treating Congress on things like moving money to the border wall and the nature of the briefings that they gave, the lack of consultation in advance of a major military operation or a major strategic decision like taking out Qasem Soleimani uh, ought to cause Congress to claw those re- those powers back. Damon, the president made this snide tweet about saying, well, I don't have to, either under no legal, I don't, I'm not legally required to give notice to Congress, but, uh, but I'm doing it anyway. This is it. My tweet is, is, is your notice. 
Well, I mean, you never uh, can treat Trump's assertions, especially in a tweet, as rooted in anything other than a secondary, a momentary impulse. But I I think, as Corey was indicating, uh, aside from the broader issue of uh, the president accruing greater and greater powers uh, and Congress giving the president that power, the, the wording of the authorization for the use of military force after 9-11, in the context of what the war on terror became and still is in a lot of ways, really is what the problem is, that we're fighting a war that is not based in nations, it's sub-state actors that that are spread throughout large regions of the planet, and we have a large enough military that we can kind of play whack-a-mole with them all over the place. And there's never really an end point. There's no, there's no surrender of a foreign army where we know it's over. There's always a new group to fight somewhere. And as long as that, and then of course all of them lead to unanticipated consequences. Like now we're in this kind of sort of a warm war with Iran that uh, heats up and then cools down and could get very hot at, at any moment if uh, the wrong decision is made. All of this means that the, you kind of trace it all the way back in time to the original authorization for the use of military force. And a president can always say, well, this is still the war on terror. This is still what you gave me powers to fight. So really, the only thing that will work is is rewriting that uh, that statement from after uh, 9-11. Now, will that happen? Uh, I don't know. I, I love that Mike Lee uh, uh, explosion yesterday after the briefing, but he was on Fox this afternoon, and he had about three seconds to say about what a bad briefing it was, and then he puckered up and gave Donald Trump a big 30-second kiss. Mm-hmm. It was full MAGA. So I think he woke up to a horse head in his bed this morning. Yeah. Uh, so I, I wouldn't really expect to see really anything in this election year with Congress, including Republicans, rising up and clawing back powers from the president. Uh, I, I should note for the record that uh, during the Obama administration, uh, the president uh, droned people all over the world, some of them even American American citizens, citizens. Um, and uh, there wasn't a peep out of Congress. Mm -hmm. And and by the way, I do think that we have to be careful, those of us like myself who are, you know, never Trumpers, um, I don't want to make decisions on a policy level or philosophical level that I would not make were somebody else in the White House. I mean, I think, you know... You don't want to uh, to limit the president in ways that we would not want a future president to be limited in. So I, I think we have to be very careful about this. But this points to a really deep problem that we're now facing that actually is of constitutional proportions. Uh, if you go back, if you go back to the founding, in particular to my favorite founder, James Madison, the assumption was that people who were placed in different institutions would care about the prerogatives of those institutions. The rise, uh, <laughs> the rise of a hyperpolarized party system mm-hmm. has nullified that assumption. And so the Constitution, which is really based on that assumption that the ambitions of the man will be linked to the interests of the place, mm-hmm. the place as an institutional place, uh, that no longer is operative 
and the Constitution is deformed and not acting and not, you know, playing out the way it was planned to as a result. And it doesn't help that so many of those people in Congress really want to be president either, and some of some of them are running. So well, I'm happier with the I'm happier with the ones who want to be president than the ones who want to be commentators on Fox yeah, or that's, MSNBC. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Can I just briefly add, yeah, I mean, sure. again, I totally agree with what Bill just said, and, and the example of Mike Lee is a perfect example of that. Yesterday, when he came out of the briefing and was all hot on the, under the collar and angry at how the, the executive branch's uh, uh, leadership came over to Congress to brief them, and it, they did a terrible job of it, and he was expressing that Madisonian uh, kind of the prerogatives of one branch against another. And then this morning, or this afternoon, he's back on TV, and it's like he's taking 85% of it back. And that's because at some level, I don't know who got to him, but somehow he came to the conclusion, actually, partisanship has to to take precedent, and I have to, to now I'm going to only make a very small objection and then spend 30 seconds praising Trump for being such a wonderful, decisive president. You know, that's I, partisanship winning over. I, I would suspect that the people who got to him were his own constituents. Oh, uh, absolutely. That's, Probably, that's yeah. who got to him. Uh, all right. Uh, well, on the subject of our constitutional system, uh, do you remember that something else is going on here in Washington called impeachment? Well, I certainly <laughs> am aware because I spent all morning going to Republican senators' offices, uh, Mona, trying to— Do you want to, to say a report on your— Yeah, well, it was actually very interesting. I was very pleased that uh, some of the offices actually remembered me uh, from my Reagan years um, and that um, they were willing to talk, and we were able to meet with— uh, top, you know, staff in uh, a variety of Republican offices. And it was a group of us uh, representing ourselves, but trying to speak for a part of the Republican Party that doesn't often get heard these days. People who still believe in conservative principles, still, you know, believe in the Republican Party and what it used to stand for, but who believe that uh, the way in which the Senate uh, and several senators are behaving uh, and it's on both sides, not just the Republican side, sort of prejudging uh, the outcome of a trial uh, in the impeachment process is bad. And we want them to make a pledge that uh, they will listen and they will uh, listen to, to all of the evidence and will seek the testimony of people who have something to say. Uh, and uh, as I say, we were pleasantly surprised. I visited uh, Senator Murkowski's uh, office, and you know she has, in fact, said that she wants to hear from witnesses, as has um, Senator Romney. Uh, and we went to a variety of other Republican offices. And by the way, we came in the door, at least on one of them, right at, I think it was Senator Romney's office, right after the Trump Defense Force had been in, and they were uh, in uniform. They all had on yellow jackets, and they were in to make, I think, the opposite case. So uh, from my point of view, it's important to get it out that not all, you know, the so-called 90 percent of Republicans to support Trump, well, that is in part because so many people have given up their Republican membership. They've lost 22 million people, uh, the party, over uh, the last few years, and a lot of that has to do with Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, so, as I mentioned in the intro, uh, John Bolton, who uh, before now has said that uh, he was going to wait for the courts to decide the case of, I think, Kupperman, uh, before he decide, made a decision about whether to testify, now says, yes, if he's subpoenaed, he will testify. So, the question arises, um, well, a couple questions. One, what should the House do in response? Should they subpoena him and then say, you know, we want to send an addendum over to the Senate when we uh, send the articles? Um, or, sh um, and, and what do we think Bolton is up to? Anybody? Selling books. Corey, you must know John Bolton. <laughs> <laughs> I am the least qualified person to have a view on this subject. All of the rest of you know much more um, about the machinations and the constitutionality and legislation of the question. Um, my guess would be that if Bolton says he'll testify, if the Senate subpoenas, it would be a great thing for Republicans to uphold the fairness of a process and issue a subpoena and see what he has to say. Um, Damon, do you have any thoughts? Um, not especially. I mean, I have no idea what he wants to say. I don't know why he wouldn't say it to the House other than displaying some contempt for the fact that the House is run by Democrats. I mean, why would he say earlier that he he won't abide by the the uh, subpoena which would have required the democrats to actually go to a judge and hash out issues about whether he would be allowed to speak to the house and now suddenly with the senate oh, don't worry about that i've solved all those problems it sounds a little suspicious to me uh but then again i'm predisposed to to not like him very much so i might be biased i am um I will speak up for John Bolton in a few ways. One, um, if you look back over events of the last six months or year, uh, and, and at least as it was reported, what, what John Bolton's views were, he has been right all along. I mean, certainly he was right about North Korea, and he was right about, arguably, about the um, decision to, well, he had urged a uh, strike at Iran after they brought down our drone, he, uh, you know, to, to a, a sort of a brushback pitch, as it were. And um, Trump elected, he at first said he was going to do it, and then at the very last minute he pulled back from that. Arguably, if he had done that, it would have been a lower level way to send a message to Iran that they can't get away with this kind of provocation without going to you know, the, the extreme position or, you know, the very harsh uh, choice of killing Soleimani. Not that I'm an apologist for Soleimani, let me quickly add, but just... So I You're think not in I, mourning I, for yeah, him? Yeah, I'm not in mourning for him. Um, <laughs> Must uh, mean she's still a Republican. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, the... Um, uh, but the... Uh, uh, so so I, I do think that his advice um, was sound, but now I, I, I can't help but think and this is, I've talked to him. I, you know, at least not about this. I don't, I don't know. Um, but it does strike me, having watched the way most Republicans have acted over the last number of years, and also remembering in particular the night that that uh, Bolton got word that he had been appointed uh, 
national security advisor, uh, he was he was overjoyed. I mean, you know, he's he's sort of a taciturn fellow. He doesn't usually seem all that happy, but he was really really happy. He likes to be in the game. He likes to be, a, you know, uh, an important decision maker. If he were to do the John Dean thing, I don't think he would lie because I think he has integrity. But if he were to do the John Dean thing and turn on Trump, uh, it would be the end of his career in the conservative world. And uh, I don't, I just don't see him. But he doesn't have to turn on Trump. I mean, the thing about I mean, you and I both know John Bolton. I don't know him well, but I've been around him and known him for know a number well of years. Um, and one of the things that surprised me when he took the job, is, and I said this to people at the time, is John doesn't suffer fools lightly. And I couldn't imagine him having to deal with Donald Trump. I think there has got to be a part of him that is genuinely frightened uh, of Trump as the commander-in-chief. I mean, there, you know, obviously Trump wants to invite the Taliban to Camp David on 9-11, the anniversary of 9-11. What he did with North Korea, in my view, was unconscionable and certainly something that uh, Bolton could not uh, abide. And uh, so, you know, I think if he is called, I don't think he will play a, a John Dean exactly, but I think he'll tell the truth. And I think if the questions are posed correctly, he's going to have... Uh, interesting and revealing information, and I think that you know it's information that senators should hear. Mm-hmm. So one more let me thing, s- if I if I may, just one addendum. Um, it, it, he does have a book coming out. Well, and I and, made that snarky and, snake. And, 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 and it and it would be weird for him to come out with a book that has revelations, right? And then be asked, well, why did you not right. testify right. about these things and hold them for your book? So mm-hmm. I think he has to be on It's not just selling books. It adds credibility, credibility. to the book and yeah, it not, undermines the credibility right, exactly. not to do exactly, it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so I think that might play a role as well. You, you were going to say, Bill. I was just reflecting. So let me see if I have this straight. John Bolton cannot abide fools and Donald Trump cannot abide honest men. This is clearly a match made in heaven. <laughs> right. No, it must have been. I mean, I think it had to have Possibly been a miserable go time. Wrong. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't think he was a happy camper while he was there. I mean, I think what? you're right. I think he was delighted because he thought he was going to get in there and, as a lot of people do, they think, well, you know, Trump's not very smart and doesn't know very much, but I'll get in there and I'll maneuver and I'll get the right things done for the right reasons. Well, it turns out that it doesn't work that way. Mm. Okay, um, 25 days until Iowa. Um, so, uh, Bill, so yes. you, uh, the uh, top three or four candidates are bunched together in the polls. There aren't that many polls. It's hard to know. Uh, well, what, what do you? Uh, what's your guess? I don't know. The most recent, the most recent poll out of Iowa had Pete Buttigieg at 23, Joe Biden at. 23, Bernie Sanders at 23, 23. <laughs> Elizabeth Warren 16, 16, 16. Yeah. Amy Globachar, who's the sleeper in all of this at seven, but coming up fast. Yay! And, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, and look, when you consider the fact that at the very least, turnout this year is going to be 50% higher than an, uh, the Iowa caucuses I've ever experienced, and it would not be at all surprising if it were 100% higher. 
nobody knows who's going to come out and actually caucus on the cold yeah, yeah. winter night in early February. So the the numbers just conceal our ignorance mm-hmm. because so much so much depends on the intensity of support for different candidates. It also depends on the last minute dynamics. What's so startling about the race right now is that only about a third of people who have a candidate preference say that they're firmly attached to the candidate they prefer. So th- this is you know this is a classic setup for an Iowa surprise. I will say this that Joe Biden is in much better shape in Iowa than he was 6 weeks ago as the result of a very determined effort to take Iowa seriously. There's no evidence that Elizabeth Warren has uh, arrested her decline in Iowa or in other places for that matter. Uh, The bloom seems to be off the Buttigieg rose just a little bit. Uh, And uh, uh, it is – so so then you have to ask the question, who needs to do what? If Globachar doesn't come in ahead of one of the big four, I think her campaign, and I say this regretfully, is 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 all but over. Uh, and if if Warren doesn't do any better than she is now polling, I think that would be a huge blow uh, to her candidacy, and it would make it much more difficult for her to prevail in New Hampshire. And if she doesn't do well in either Iowa or New Hampshire, I think that would deal a body blow to her, to her candidacy. Uh, I will say finally, when the dust settles, I would not be surprised to see a structural rerun of the 2016 Democratic primary with Bernie Sanders playing the role of Bernie Sanders <laughs> and Joe Biden playing the role of Hillary, Hillary Clinton. Clinton. Right. Damon, um, Bill mentioned intensity, intensity of attachment and feeling, and that seems to favor Bernie in a place like, well, anywhere, but in particular in Iowa where it's a caucus. And what, what, what's your sense of it? Yeah, I agree. And I agree with much of what uh, Bill just said. Uh, I was actually queuing myself up to say uh, something somewhat similar to what he said at the end about a replay of 2016 with Biden and Sanders uh, replaying that battle because we are getting to a point where people who aren't uh, pretty high up uh, in the standings uh, when they count the votes in Iowa and New Hampshire are going to have a very hard time staying in it. And we're at this crucial moment in the final month. Sanders seems to really have kind of leveled out and is slowly rising with his main competition on the left, Warren somewhat fading. And so, you know, depending on how those first two states work out, it is plausible that it could be that Sanders ends up being the primary option other than Biden. Now, the the main wild card in this, I think, is going to be Uh, how Iowa and New Hampshire play out if the same alternative to Biden wins both. 
that person will clearly be the main alternative going forward. If it's kind of, if the two states come out and it's all a mix and one person wins one and another wins another and neither is Biden, then they sort of are going to cancel each other out and we're still sort of unsettled. So that's one thing I would be looking at as we head in to those first early states. Is there a kind of coalescence around a non-Biden alternative? And, you know, the last thing I'd say is that the way foreign policy has asserted itself as more important uh, here, uh, you know, who knows what it'll look like three weeks from now, which in Trump years is like about, you know, three and a half decades. But uh, at the moment, foreign policy is being talked about a lot. And Sanders clearly is positioning himself as the only candidate who truly will just say to hell with all of you on everything. I'm an alternative to uh, the hawks in the Republican camp and in the Democratic camp, whereas Warren, as usual, is trying to kind of play at both sides. But Sanders is clearly positioning himself as an alternative, which could play into well him ending up as like a, a 20 percent alternative to uh, Biden's 35 percent. Corey, did you want to add anything? I know this is, you know, this kind of political talk is not necessarily what you usually do, but if you have thoughts, we'd love to hear them. No, I don't think I can improve on the horse race assessment that those two guys very ably did. Okay, Linda? Well, I guess the only thing I would add is I have actually been a bit surprised at Warren's precipitous uh, decline in recent weeks. Um, you know, I, she was never a favorite of mine, obviously. Uh, but um, she's fallen fast. And, and, and it's, it's interesting. I mean, it's all, everyone seems to think it had to do with her Medicare for all uh, falter and her explanation. I think that was part of it. But I also think she didn't, I've never thought she was a particularly appealing candidate, personally. And I think that matters. Likeability matters, and I've never found her that likable, despite her 100,000 selfies. Um, she tries too hard at being likable, and I and I, I just have been sort of surprised at that. Uh, I think uh, whoever said Biden's got to be in there, at least he's got to be in one of the top two uh, in an it would be great, if, from my point of view, if he had it in both New Hampshire and Iowa, but he certainly needs to be in at least one if, if um, history is a path, you know, any kind of a path to the future. Well, big, big if. Big things if, can yeah. change quickly. Uh, I remember in, in, I seem to remember that in past years uh, there were sudden bloomings of candidates in Iowa you know, just a couple of weeks before the caucuses, who uh, went on to went on to do well. So, um, of course, wasn't it Bill Clinton? You would know this, Bill. Wasn't it Bill Clinton who? What did he come in in Iowa? And then he he didn't contest it. Iowa. Oh, he didn't contest Iowa. No, that's why you don't remember, Mona. Oh, right. No, but then he <laughs> Tom Harkin was running in effect as a favorite oh, son. Favorite son. Oh, okay. That's right. Okay. Yeah, the senator from Iowa. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, so we we have. Uh, we have time to, uh, to, to follow that, and uh, now we will close with our observations and or praise for people that are usually on the other side, and uh, Linda, why don't you start us off? Well, I was going to start off and thank Mike Lee for his, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, even though I sort of disagree with him because I actually think it was right to 
kills a lot of that. I just like the fact know, that Linda, he was that, it, that you and I can only be delighted with something a Republican does for a maximum of six hours. <laughs> that's I mean, right. That's I know. <laughs> and until Fox News uh, gets them, yeah. said, once, once they're booked on Fox News, just forget <laughs> it. So that was that. I lost that. Oh well, Bill. Well. This doesn't really qualify as the other side except in an intra-party sense. Uh, But I was surprised and a little impressed when Elizabeth Warren forthrightly endorsed NAFTA 2.0 because that is – at least in some quarters in the the Democratic Party, particularly the quarters that she's trying to commandeer – that is not a particularly attractive position and Bernie Sanders, of course, immediately took the other side of that one. Uh, and uh, that, that showed uh, you know, a certain integrity uh, that I respect. Uh, so mine would be how, how presidential Joe Biden sounded uh, talking about Iraq. I, I was really impressed uh, and as somebody who sailed on the pirate ship McCain in 2008, <laughs> it was really unexpected for me. You were you were his foreign policy advisor, right? I was indeed. And so I recall the ease with which Sarah Palin fought Joe Biden to a standstill on foreign policy uh, at that time. And he really sounded quite presidential, um, impressive by contrast to the recklessness that the president's decision-making and the sort of clown car of the memo about withdrawing from Iraq. I, I thought Biden did a really nice job. Great. Uh, Damon. I'm afraid I have to confess that I did not do my homework and <laughs> I do not have anything to share. Okay. Well, as long as you're willing to share it with the class, you know, that's... <laughs> I'll bring right. two next week. <laughs> no problem. Um, so mine is uh, a piece, I don't know if you could exactly call this the other side. It, it was in a certain sense. There's a, a re- former reporter for the Wall Street Journal named Geraldine Brooks we had a piece in the New York Times, an op-ed, um, <clears throat> which was called, We Have Iranian Blood on Our Hands, Too. And I have to say that that is the kind of article that a few years ago I would have bristled at. It would have bothered me. I would have thought, oh, there they go, the liberals, you know, always wanting to do that both sidesism, moral equivalence, and so on and so forth. But I read it, and look... Uh, Without making apologies for the disgusting regime in Tehran, it is a terrible, brutal regime. But it is also important to remember that they have a point of view that isn't completely insane. For example, we did tilt uh, towards Saddam and against them in the in the uh, Iran-Iraq war in the 1980s. That was an aggressive war that Saddam started. And, uh, you know, it's worth remembering that... Uh, that the Iranians uh, uh, could could have hard feelings about that. Further, she cited the fact that we shot down uh, that that our ship, the Vincennes, shot down a passenger airliner, uh, just like we saw in in Iran this week. But uh, but it was shot down by one of our uh, ships, and this I did not know. I had always heard that this was an accident, that, you know, we thought it was a military craft and we made a mistake, honest mistake, whatever. But she pointed out that the captain of that ship had been cited 
for being overly aggressive, had chased vessels into Iranian waters before, and also that despite this mistake of shooting down an airliner and killing 290 civilians, he was he was given a medal. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, these things are worth remembering, and uh, it doesn't it doesn't mean that we're equivalent to Iran or anything like that, but it is always worth remembering that there are two sides and that they have their grievances too. So good job, Geraldine Brooks. And thank you all. Uh, until next time. Oh, I am to remind everyone who listens to spread the word. We're doing great. We're getting a lot of feedback. We love feedback. Leave comments and, and ratings on uh, iTunes, only if you rate us a five, of course. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, uh, please tell your friends and spread the word, and uh, we will be back here next week. <laughs>